Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done nearly 600 of them now over the last 11 years. So if this is new to you and you'd like to check out some of the previous ones, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see them all organized in several different ways. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website. And there's also a page of other ways of doing it if you don't want to deal with PayPal. My guest today is Rabbi Rami Shapiro. I'll just read his bio here. Rabbi Rami is a Jewish practitioner of perennial wisdom. He's an award-winning author of over 36 books on religion and spirituality. He received rabbinical ordination from the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, and holds a Ph.D. in religion from Union Graduate School. A rabbinic chaplain with the U.S. Air Force for three years, a congregational rabbi for 20, and a professor of religious studies for 10, Rabbi Rami currently co-directs the One River Foundation, is a contributing editor at Spirituality and Health magazine, and hosts the magazine's bi-weekly podcast, Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami. Today we're going to do a little bit of an experiment, because as those of you who listen to this show regularly know, I usually spend a lot of hours during the week before an interview listening to the person's talks and interviews and stuff and reading their book or books. But Rabbi Rami said this. He said, I prefer we simply have a conversation that isn't pre-scripted. I don't want Rick to read anything, even though he's written a gazillion books. Nor am I at all interested in talking about what I've already written. But if Rick just trusts us to have a conversation about what he is interested in, I think that will be more valuable. So that's what we're going to do. And as Rabbi Rami said to me a few minutes ago, it's, that's Larry King style. He did a show every night. He didn't have time to prepare much for all these interviews. And he actually wanted to know as little about the person as his audience possibly knew so that he would ask the sort of questions they would ask. And I think that Rabbi Rami and I and most of you watching this are all interested in many of the same things. So I don't think we're going to have a problem with this. Although I did cheat, Rabbi Rami, and I just looked at your website about an hour ago and went through those interesting points on perennial wisdom, on Judaism, on Divine Mother, on recovery, on holy rascals, and I copied that stuff down. So if I get desperate, I'll, I'll look at those. Good to see you, and good to meet you, and thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Rick. It's nice to be here. Yeah. Typically, we start interviews by just uh, getting to know the person a little bit so people know who it is they're listening to and how it is that he knows what, what he's talking about. Why don't you give us a, an overview of your background? Let me start by saying you should never assume people know what they're talking about. <laughs> well, it's, it's relative. <laughs> Especially if they talk for a living, which is what I yeah. do. But... The basic background is I grew up in a modern Orthodox Jewish home, which I found essentially meaningless to my life. And for those of us I who mean, are not Jewish, what does Orthodox mean? Not the guys with the long sideburns, no, but somewhere in between. That, that's more extreme than right. yeah, more extreme than my parents. But you know, we kept a kosher home. I still keep a kosher home. We did most of the rituals. 
but there was nothing behind them. There was no spirituality. There was no, really no, no meaning to it other than you're a Jew. This is what Jews do. So this is what you're going to do. And, you know, I lived that way most of my, you know, I grew up there. So until I was in high school, when two of my teachers in my junior year of high school, they, or I guess it was my sophomore year in uh, the summer, they went to India. They got a grant to study what they called Asian civilization. And when they came back, my last two years of high school were steeped in, in taking electives with them on Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism. And that stuff really spoke to me because what they taught wasn't the ritual. What they taught was the philosophy. And I was just interested in that stuff. So I moved out of orthodoxy as quickly as possible and moved into Buddhism. I wanted to be a Zen Buddhist. That was my ultimate goal. Studied philosophy, studied religion, Jewish, Buddhist in uh, college. And then as I was preparing to graduate and go to graduate school to get my credential to be a Buddhist studies professor, my Zen master, Joshi Suzaki Roshi, cornered me at a retreat literally backed me into a against a wall and he told me that university graduate school would ruin buddhism for me and that if i really wanted to understand buddhism i should move into the monastery he, his monastery was mount baldy outside of los angeles move there learn japanese because his english was poor and study zen on the cushion rather than you know in the classroom i've been there i'd visited the place I was not interested. If I'm going to a monastery, it has to have hot and cold running water, showers, and flush toilets. That's, that's like minimum for me. So I knew I wasn't going to do that, but I didn't know what to say. And I just blurted out, literally, without any expectation I was going to do this. I just blurted out, Roshi, I can't do that. I'm going to become a rabbi. And then he said, oh, be rabbi, be zen rabbi. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll be a Zen rabbi, but just back off. <laughs> and, and that's sort of how it went. He was right about graduate school. It was terrible in Buddhist studies. I switched to Judaic studies very quickly within the first semester and then went on to take my interest in Hinduism and Buddhism and mysticisms in general and use that as the lens through which I re-engaged with, with Judaism, both as a philosophy and as a practice. That's great. I noticed behind you there, you have Jesus on the cross, you have some Arabic thing, you have an Om symbol, you have some kind of a little scroll up in one corner. I can't see who that other guy is, but you, you definitely have most, most yeah, of the bases got, covered. Got, right, a lot of the symbolism, but it's actually Mary on the cross. You can't oh, tell because no. it's, it's a gift I was given last, I was in Israel leading an interfaith uh, pilgrimage, and we saw this crucifix with Mary on the cross holding Jesus. And it really spoke to me as the crucified mother, more than the crucified son, I think, you know, outside of Christian context, we've crucified the mother, we've killed the mother, and we're waiting. I think we're living at a time when she's resurrecting. And it's going to be what the Hindus call the Kali Yuga. It's going to be a time of absolute collapse of human civilization as a way of preparing ourselves, cleansing ourselves for a rebirth. Well, you just gave me goosebumps. I'm feeling chills all over because this resonates very deeply with me. And uh, let's divert right into this discussion. So perhaps first, 
Well, elaborate on what you were just saying, what the crucified mother really means, and then I'll have plenty of questions. Yeah, I mean, we went from, of course, I'm romanticizing prehistory here, but we went, we went from a matriarchal society, nature-honoring society, a mother-honoring society, both mothers, actual mothers, biological mothers, but also the mother, as our archetype of reality. And we probably with the onset of agriculture, maybe, but we everything shifted to patriarchal religion. And, and Judaism is at the pinnacle of patriarchy, as is Christianity and Islam. But we moved to this patriarchal and parochial kind of religion. And that has brought us ecological devastation. That's brought us pandemics. I think that when you look at what's going on, not just climate change, which brings on these and I just heard it again. Someone said, oh, the storm of the century. No, it was the storm of the century 20 years ago. Now we've got a new storm of the century. It's a storm, a mighty, massive, unprecedented storm, maybe every, I don't know, really, every few decades. The same thing with the Even pandemic. more often. Every year we have storms of the century. Yeah, <laughs> right. Okay. So, so, you know, and fires and you know, yeah. all this stuff. The earth is trying to shake us off, yeah. you know. We're like kudzu and, and she's got to get, you know, get the numbers down so it's a more manageable thing. But all of this, I think, is because we've lost the wisdom of the mother, of the divine mother in those Jungian archetypal terms. And that wisdom is the wisdom of interconnectedness, the wisdom of interdependence, the wisdom of cooperation, mutuality. All those things are in patriarchal religions, but they're just not emphasized and that devolution into patriarchy is, I think, the root cause of 90% of our problems, let's say. And that the solution is going to be a radical shift. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be graceful. It's not going to be slow. It's going to entail the collapse of the norms that we have lived by for centuries. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to collapse mindfully or mindlessly? Are we going to collapse compassionately or cruelly? And are we going to collapse with a sense of grace or just a sense of horror? And I think it's all about horror, cruelty, and mindlessness. That's what it looks like to me. But it doesn't have to be that way. But I think that's where we're at at the moment. Do you know who Dwayne Elgin is? I know the name. Yeah. I just started reading his book called Choosing Earth, and I've, I've interviewed him before, and I'll be interviewing him again. He's saying basically what you're saying, but he lays out three scenarios. One could be complete collapse, which we don't really recover from in the foreseeable future, just a sort of a hellscape on Earth. Another could be a complete collapse that's followed by a sort of a Chinese-style, AI-dominated authoritarian society. And a third could be complete collapse, followed by a restructuring and a resurgence into a very bright heaven-on-earth kind of age. Obviously, we would all prefer the third one, and hes I don't know if he's placing bets on one or the other, but he said if we play our cards right, we could end up with option three. It's not too late for that to be possible. Well, I agree, and I agree that if we play our cards right, we can get the third option. I don't know because I haven't read that book, but so I don't know what it means to play our cards right. But if you asked me, you know, what would be part of playing our cards right, it would be for individuals to take on 
a kind of spiritual practice that would, in, in Jewish terms, in, in Hebrew terms, they talk about being of two minds. One is a mochin de katnut, narrow mind, ego mind, uh, egoic mind, where it's us against them and me against you, and I'm apart from nature and God and everything else. And the other is called mochin de godlut, spacious mind, where I'm a part of the whole. Spiritual practices, every religion has them, but I'm not talking about formal liturgical, go to church, go to mosque, go to temple, go to synagogue. I'm talking about meditative practices, though it doesn't always have to be silent, sitting cross-legged on a mat, but contemplative practices that allow the egoic mind to drop of its own accord and for you to experience something greater, that direct experience of the vastness of which we are a part. I think that has got to be part of the mix. And if it is, I think that shifts us to that more ideal third scenario that he lays out. I absolutely agree. People who are concerned about climate change and all, they'll be saying things like, well, we've got to get off of fossil fuels and we need to get electric cars and we need to get more wind turbines and you know all that stuff, which is true. And some of them will say we need to change our way of thinking. We need to be less selfish and short-sighted and so on. And that, of course, is also true. But not too many bring in the element of how we achieve that. And I think it's exactly what you just said, that enough people have to shift into what we might call cosmic consciousness or universal awareness, just living their lives in tune with divine intelligence. And then when enough people do that, then collective consciousness will shift in a big way. And that is the most pivotal or fundamental or influential level at which change could occur. Although all the other levels of change are also necessary, the technological stuff and everything. Right. I totally agree. I I don't think it's an either or. It's a both and. Yes, exactly. And that, that shift in consciousness will actually help those who are developing better technologies and all. It'll enliven the field of, I think, intelligence or creativity and steer things in the right direction. Because a lot of times our technological advances turn out to be retreats. There are unintended consequences from them. And just because our thinking hasn't been comprehensive or deep enough or guided enough. Yeah. And also, and, uh, Elgin, he doesn't have, I guess, doesn't have a fourth alternative. I could think of a fourth alternative to the three you mentioned, and that is for the very wealthy to get off the planet and go set up some utopian society for themselves. And there'll be two classes, the super wealthy who get to go and then the people who do all the work that they will bring with them to sustain them. I think a lot of people, not a lot, I wouldn't know the number, but that whole singularity movement, the post-human movement, the off-planet movement, let's get to Mars, let's terraform Mars. We should work on the Earth first. Yeah. The idea of escape is not necessarily one that I value, though almost every religion has its escapism scenario, right? There's a heaven after, there's a life after this life and another dimension, another plane. It's so much better there. You know, it's all about getting out of here. Transcendence can be a drug, you know, an addiction. I think one of the shifts that happens when we move from the the patriarchal masculine paradigm to the matriarchal divine feminine paradigm is you move from this transcendence to eminence, but ultimately you realize that both terms are incomplete without, each is incomplete without the other because there is no up or down. There's just this infinite 
I think you called it the divine intelligence or whatever you want to call it. There's just this infinite happening uh, to translate the Jewish word for God, the YHVH, the unpronounceable name for God from the comes from the verb to be. So there's just this infinite being, not a supreme being, not a, a personal being, but just being itself or happening itself that includes imminence and transcendence. Contemplative practice help you realize that you are an expression of that the way a wave is an expression of the ocean. And then the work you do on the environment, then, then the work you do politically and economically and socially is all, it becomes non-dual and non-zero. In other words, it's, it's always win-win when you realize you can't win unless everybody wins. Yeah. I have a good friend who um, instructed Elon Musk in meditation, and they were chatting with each other and talking about what they'd like to achieve. And my friend said, I'd like to get more people in Africa meditating. And Elon Musk said, I want to colonize Mars. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. So I want to ask you a question, because huh? we're talking about meditation. And over your, it looks to me, over your right shoulder is somebody. Picture of Amma, the, oh, the so-called hugging is, saint. Yeah, Hugging saint. It looked like her, but I wasn't 100% sure. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just another example of what the mother paradigm is all about. You know, rather than, and I don't mean to insult my friends who are into different traditions, but rather than bowing down and touching the feet of the guru or, or the swami, and, you know, I've had this done to me in India, and they told me this is not about you, it's just a custom, and I get all that. But to be hugged by this woman who channels the divine so exquisitely it's much better i've never done it so have, have you met her oh yeah i've seen her yeah. aside from the pandemic uh, we've seen her every year for about 20 years ah, spent quite so a bit you've been hugged many times so tell me if i'm wrong because i now i'm just romanticizing it but from what i've read and heard from people who have done it that you feel yourself enwrapped by the divine. Yes. And it's a kind of surrendering to her holding you. Yeah. Is that fair? It is. There's something very profound going on. In addition to my own experience with her, I've watched others for hours on end as, as the program progresses. And I've seen big, tough football player types come up there and just break down in tears. My subjective experience of it is that she just embodies vastness. And so when I have that experience of darshan with her, there's a, an entrainment, and I become vast also more yeah. clearly than I may have already been experiencing. Yeah. And I also feel that she has a deep insight into I've had instances where I've come up and in the 30-second or one-minute encounter I have with her, since there are thousands of people in line, she taps right into something, knows exactly what's going on with me, says a word or two or does a word or two, and it changes my life. You know, she's kind of sitting at the master switchboard and all she has to do is tweak a few little knobs and things change in a big way. So yeah, it's been a yeah, powerful I, engine on my train. I envy you. I went to hear her in Nashville. I spent hours. I don't know if she ever went to Nashville. Her. I didn't know that. She didn't. Oh. So I spent hours listening, you know, and I'm waiting for her to come out. And, and then this woman comes out and she gives a talk and then she leaves. And I said to uh, some of the priests at the temple where this was happening, I said, wait, what about the hugging? And they said, wrong Amma. Oh, yeah. Amma <laughs> just means mother. There's lots of Ammas. I, <laughs> I misread the advertising. But there was a... Um, this is a long time ago, a reporter from NPR 
who went to see her somewhere and she was very skeptical. I mean, this is, you know, she's interviewing people in line and, oh, this is silly. And she was really, I don't know if snarky is the right word, but she was very, very skeptical. But she went through it and, and so it was her turn. And the mic is on and she goes up and she gets this hug and you hear her go, oh my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and something happened. It was so unrehearsed and I was going to say spontaneous, but that's redundant. It was so spontaneous that it couldn't have been faked. You know, it was just an authentic response to what she had just experienced. And I think, and then I'll stop on this track, but I think, though I've, again, never been hugged by her, that the kind of contemplative practice I'm talking about takes you to the same experience where you feel the vastness, as you, as you put it, and you feel surrendered to that vastness or to the divine, depends on how you want to, you know, language it, but you feel surrendered to that in such a way that you realize your own oceanic nature, your own vastness, you realize you are a part of and never apart from this dynamic whole. That changes everything in our relationships to one another and our relationships to the planet, to nature. Everything changes that way. I think people need, and it's impossible probably, but people need the experience, not just reading about in a book, not just hearing it over NPR, but they need the experience of this surrendered transformation in order to know how to engage the world in the way I'm suggesting it needs to be engaged. Well, I don't think it's impossible. It's entirely possible. And if all I ever did was see AMA once a year or something like that, that would not be adequate for me. I've had a regular practice for over 50 years involving hours a day, and it's been very rewarding. So, you know, I, I just think this spiritual evolution business is kind of a lifelong project. And, you know, if you can find an effective practice and, and stick with it, It'll be a life well lived. It'll have a profound cumulative effect. So can you tell us what you do? Well, yeah, I learned TM when I was 18 in 1968, and I was a teacher of it for many years. And these days, I'm making this a short story, went on many long courses, six months here, six weeks there, and so on. And then um, started seeing Amma in 99 and eventually got a mantra for, from her, which I use TM style a couple hours a day, two, three hours a day on a regular basis. I think mantra practice is really vital. And I'm assuming, well, I don't know, tell us, are you sitting or are you levitating? <laughs> <laughs> nope, I got lead in my pants. I'm, I'm just uh, sitting okay. there. <laughs> <laughs> but from day one for me, it had a huge effect learning to meditate. It changed my life. I was a high school dropout getting involved in all kinds of difficulties and problems. And, and uh, you know, within a month or two, I was back in school and got a job and, you know, just turned me around. Amen. That relates to something you said a few minutes ago as transcendence as an escape. I think it, some people can use it as an escape, perhaps, but I see it more like when you go to the bank to withdraw some money, it's not an escape. It's a preparation to go back to the market and then you have some money in your pockets and you can spend the money. Yeah, yeah right. so meditation kind of charges your batteries and then you get back into activity. The Gita says yoga is skill in action. It sets you up for more successful life in the world. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I, I don't know if people are familiar with the 10 ox herding pictures. Most of, people uh, are. Zen Buddhism. Yeah. 
the eighth one, if I remember them right, the eighth one is just the ENSO. It's blank. The the person is gone. You know, that that uh, in the Heart Sutra, gate, gate, para gate, parasam gate, bodhisvaha, gone, gone, gone beyond even the idea of gone. Um, and then the ninth one is nature returns. There's a sense of nature coming back. And then the tenth one is the seeker now having experienced this greater reality of which the seeker is a part, comes back very large, very powerful, and comes back into the village as the village elder, the sage, whatever you want to call it. And it is. But he's riding the ox, which means that he is established in the transcendent and yet engaged in in the activity too, right? Yeah, I actually have to look at it. I don't think he's riding the ox anymore. I think the ox has been internalized. Oh, you may be right. And he's just coming back into the village. But the idea is the same, that the, 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 the difference between transcendence and imminence is now gone. He's fully alive, fully awake. Yeah. And now he's just in the world, however the world presents itself to her or him. There's another verse in the Gita where, well, there's one verse where Krishna says to Arjuna, transcend, be without the three gunas. And then a few verses later, he says, established in yoga or established in being, perform action you know so it's just the same point over again that it's you know sometimes meditation has a reputation for being an escapist kind of thing like you know what are you going to do about the world you know you're just it's selfish to sit there with your eyes closed people said that to me when i first learned but like getting a good night's sleep or many things we do to prepare for activity it's a preparation you know it makes you more effective in activity and a more fulfilled human being i think so i agree with you i think that when People are engaged in very important social justice issues, environmental justice. I mean, there's so many things that need to be addressed. And they come at those without, and this is obviously my bias, but without a spiritual grounding. And by that, I mean an ongoing practice. I think it becomes, first of all, it's very draining, I think. And second of all, it becomes very egoic. I've got the answer or my group has got the answer and we're going to just do it our way as opposed to the humility that comes with spiritual practice that allows you to engage the world more powerfully, but not more violently, I guess you might say. And this humility, is a, it's, that's a delicate thing too, because I've met many spiritual practitioners and I've probably been one myself at times who were not very humble and who did think that their way was the best or gave other people a hard time about what they were doing and, you know, kind of adopted this holier-than-thou attitude. So I think that there's kind of on the spiritual path, there's this balancing act of um, integration and, and purification and stabilization and growth and kind of all, you're juggling all these balls. But humility is an important one. And I think also discrimination or discernment is an important one because it's it's sometimes easy to get caught up on tangents, caught up in tangents and kind of go off the track. Yeah. And sometimes it's, you know, with all the right intention, you've had an experience and you go, my God, this has changed my life. You need to do this. <laughs> right. It'll change your life. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it's it's done with the right intention, but maybe with the wrong energy. And that comes with practice. It just takes a bit of time to get you know, to that place of being convinced that there is a way, there is a transformation, there is a capacity for transformation, and not to assume there's only one way to get there. Yeah. 
I'm often saying God is not a one-trick pony. Sometimes when I've been confronted by religious fundamentalists, I find myself beginning to discuss astronomy. Because if you consider the vastness of the universe and the probability of life throughout the universe and so on, you know, trillions of inhabited planets probably, although that's a little hard to reconcile if you think the universe is 6,000 years old, but probably a good percentage of the inhabited planets, probably all of them have some sort of spiritual traditions and religions and so on. And, and I wonder what percentage of those think that theirs is the only way or theirs is the best. Probably many of them. It's just absurd when you expand it out that far to think that about anything on our planet being exclusive or unique. or Yeah. The flip side is, I mean, you don't have to go off world <laughs> to make the point. I, you know, Rami, by myself, think that I forget how many was it, two billion Christians on the planet who believe that, you know, Jesus is the only son of God, uh -huh. as opposed to all life being a child of the divine. Billions of people who take the phrase from John where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through right. me. Billions of people take that literally. And I say to them, wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so much for humility, right? You know, I say, no, no, you're missing the point. I was once in Israel, it's a long story, which I won't bore you with, but I was once confronted by this um, Anglican priest who said uh, to me, I don't know if you know this term, that uh, C.S. Lewis's trilemma. I've read C.S. Lewis, but I don't remember that term. So this is something he came up with when he was doing the BBC radio shows during World War II. And he said that uh, trilemma means that you only have three options in, in the situation he sets you up with. So he says, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, is he a liar? Is he a lunatic or is he Lord? And in C.S. Lewis's mind, no one would call Jesus a liar or a lunatic. So, da-da, you must say that he's Lord. I was in Israel at this Anglican center, and this uh, priest came over, and she tossed that at me. She knew I was a rabbi. And she said, so which is it? Is he a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? And I said, I reject the trilemma. There's a fourth option. And to her credit, she'd never thought about it. And she said, really, what is it? And I said, Jesus is a God-realized mystic that when he is saying, I am, he's referring to the I am revealed in Exodus, the, the singular subject that is all reality. And he's saying, I am is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the I am except through the I am consciousness, which he embodied. Anyone can do that. There's practice involved. But she had never thought of it. And again, to her credit, she said, well, I have to think about that. So like I said at the top of the show, you know, I looked at Judaism through the lens of mysticism, and I look at all religions through that lens. And then when I do that, I end up with what's called the perennial wisdom that says the I am consciousness is the way, the truth, and the life. And everyone has access to that because everyone is an expression of that. Yeah. And it's closer than your breath, you know? I mean, it's right here. It permeates, it pervades yeah. everything. Yeah, Rumi says God's closer than your jugular. Yeah. So that's encouraging because it means that it's not far removed from us. And in fact, nothing could be closer. And so it should be the easiest thing to tap into, really, if yeah. you just sort of have the trick on how to tap in. Right. I mean, it's the Hindu, the Upanishad saying, you know, tatvam asi, you are it. 
you know? And that's why it's so hard to get because you're trying to get it as if it weren't you. And that false sense of separation is, is the problem. Yeah. There's also a verse in the Gita which says, no effort is lost and no obstacle exists. Even a little of this dharma removes great fear. So any step that you take in that direction it bears fruit to whatever extent. Yeah. yeah. One thing I've often encountered in interviewing people mostly, they reach a certain point in their life where they just either get desperate or fed up or just the yearning gets so strong and they just say, please help me. I got to find this thing. And as soon as there's that sincere entreaty, that sincere intention, stuff happens through the most interesting coincidences sometimes that just that something comes to them that they can begin uh, progressing with. And a lot of teachers say that actually, that the desire for God or the desire for realization is the most fundamental technique of all. Yeah. When you reach that point, it's what you know, we call in recovery, you know, hitting rock bottom. And at that point, you're just surrendered. And all you can do is say, you know, like Annie Lamott says there's three kinds of prayer, help, thanks, and wow. So you hit that <laughs> help moment and everything shifts for you if, if you let it. It's all about living with what the Chinese call wei wu wei, that non-coercive action. So you're doing, but you're not doing from the ego. You're not doing to, to get power. You're, not, you're just doing because in the moment, this is what needs to be done. Yeah. And you know it. It's what Krishnamurti calls choiceless awareness. You just sort of know this to be true. It's row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. You are rowing a bit. You're just steering this way and that slightly so that your boat doesn't go off into the rocks or branches. But the stream is really the thing that's propelling the boat. You're just making subtle adjustments like you do with the steering wheel when you're going down the highway. Right. But you can get self-driving cars. That's true. <laughs> there goes that metaphor. You can actually go to sleep while it's driving. <laughs> People have been seen doing that. All right. And at any point during this conversation, just if any thought comes to mind and you want to talk about it, just launch into it. You don't have to wait for me to ask. I mentioned perennial wisdom mm -hmm. and we didn't define okay, it. Okay, so yeah, good I, idea. Take a second to Please. do that. So uh, perennial wisdom is a fourfold teaching at the mystic heart of all religions. Each religion will articulate it in its own way. But the points are basically the same. They're very simple. Point number one is that every life is a manifesting of a singular or non-dual aliveness. You can call it God or Tao or Mother or Nature or Brahman, Dharmakaya. There's millions of names for this thing. But the language aside, it's a singularity. It's just this infinite happening, and you and I are happenings of that happening. That's number one. Number two, human beings have the innate capacity to awaken in, with, and as this aliveness. Number three, when you awaken in with and as this aliveness, you're called to a, a, an ethical standard to live a certain ethical way. And in Judaism, we would say it's you know the golden rule, perhaps, or Christianity would say it's the golden rule. But something like that, something that recognizes the mutuality and interdependence of all life for the express purpose, again, to use biblical terms, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That's Genesis 12, 3. And the fourth one is, awakening to this aliveness and living as a blessing to all the families of the earth, those two things comprise the highest calling of any human being. And again, I think you can find in every religion ways of articulating the same four points, but they're always around, they're, they're always the same points. And that's 
you know, to go back to where we in the very beginning, I think that the collapse of patriarchy slash parochialism is going to be the rebirth of the divine or the, the I can't say rebirth. She's not dead, but, you know, a reappreciation of the divine mother, the divine feminine and uh, perennial wisdom will be part of that shift. Yeah, that's good. I just read an article last night about Swami Muktananda and how later in his life he had a couple strokes and a heart attack and stuff. And, and then his behavior became very strange. And even though he was still teaching and quite brilliant in some ways, but, you know, he began messing around with young ladies and so on. And I was corresponding with a friend of mine who used to be with him at that point and was one of his people helping him write his books and stuff. And we were thinking about it and talking about this idea of, the correlation between ethical behavior and enlightenment. You may know Ken Wilber's idea of the different lines of development. I used to always think these lines of development were quite tightly correlated and that to whatever extent consciousness awoke, there would be a corresponding awakening of ethical behavior and all, you know, intellect and heart and all the other faculties. But I've sort of had to conclude after all these years that the correlation is really quite loose. Um, unfortunately. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I would say that there, it, it may be correlated if in the following way that um, I think I'm not, I'm not quoting this right, but in the Talmudic literature, or in the rabbinic literature somewhere, it says, you know, the greater the saint, the greater the shadow, that as you expand your consciousness, the shadow also expands. And the trick, if that's the right word, is to take the the energy of the shadow side of our personality and channel it into something good. But you're never going to become only good. And you can't make mistakes. You can't let the ego get the better of you. It's always part of the mix. So my own sense of it is, because I've had a lot of teachers, and then I found out that lots of them haven't lived up to the hype. I think you have to focus on the teaching and not attach to the teacher. Yeah, but if the teaching the is really worth its salt, shouldn't the teacher reflect the efficacy of it? As best the teacher can. But that doesn't mean the teacher's ever going to be perfect no. because of that ongoing shadow side. Yeah. I've had people try to excuse the behavior of their teacher when it's really vile. I won't give specifics because I don't want to insult anybody. But I was with a friend who was a disciple of a Buddhist who was a raging alcoholic, and when he drank, Shogim he, Trumpa often Rinpoche. Became, he often <sighs> became violent. And she told this story, but she was at a retreat, and he was drunk, and he became violent, and he started to chase her around the room with a butcher knife, yeah. saying, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. And she took it literally and ran for her life and got in her car and drove away. And then, I don't know how long later, but as she was driving away from the retreat, she realized it. She said to herself, he was trying to show me my own mortality. So she drove back and sort of said, no, it wasn't what it looked like. He was trying to show me my own mortality. Luckily for her, he had fallen asleep by the time she got yeah. back. I get what you're saying. You know, it'd be nice if people lived up to the teachings. I think everyone wrestles with it, even gurus. So I, I think we have to be healthfully skeptical, healthfully skeptical of, of our teachers yeah. and not expect the impossible, but not denigrate the teaching because the teacher can't maybe can't live up to it. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm rather skeptical of her rationalization. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, me too. Yeah. <laughs> Secondly, I would again make the point that 
Why do we engage in a teaching anyway? Well, we want some benefit from it. We want to become a better person. We want to become enlightened. We want to be more compassionate or whatever the benefits of a teaching supposedly are. And I know that nobody's perfect. We're all works in progress. Everyone who walks the earth or has walked it. But again, you would expect a teacher to be somewhat of an example of the, of the value of the teaching. And if he isn't, if, if it's that extreme, as you're saying, then you really have to question, maybe he's just eloquent or whatever. He has a bright intellect or something. But the teaching doesn't seem to have affected him that much. Unless oh, he would right, have been even right. worse if he hadn't been engaged in it. Well, that's <laughs> what I'm saying, that you can still have respect for the teaching, even if not for the teacher. Uh, do you remember Eugene Harrigal? No. He wrote a book called Zen and the Art of Archery. Oh, I, re- I remember the book, yes. And when I was in high school, that was... Man, you had to read that even in college in Buddhist classes. Everyone, oh, you got to read Harrigal. And it turns out that after he became, quote, unquote, enlightened through his Zen archery studies, he went back to Germany in the 30s and, uh, you know, he became a Nazi. How can an enlightened Buddhist become a Nazi? Well, actually, many of the Nazis were really into Vedic religion and Vedic studies. I mean, I think it was Goebbels or one of those guys carried a Gita around in his pocket. They... It's possible to take a teaching uh, and warp it to extreme degrees. I mean, look at how many people have been killed in the name of Christianity or other religions. You know, huge number. No, look, look at at, you could just because you brought up the Gita. I mean, look at Hindu nationalism, where there's there's uh, you know priests, Hindu priests preaching violence against Muslims in the name of their Hinduism, or you get some of these ultra-Orthodox, right-wing Orthodox settlers in Israel who, in the name of Torah, which says, you know, love the stranger and don't oppress the powerless, and you have them sanctioning all kinds of evil vis-a-vis the Palestinians. So they're humans. (laughs) That's the problem. That's why if Elon Musk ever makes it to Mars, it's still going to suck after a while because he's bringing humans. Yeah. (laughs) It already sucks on Mars. <laughs> I wouldn't want to live there. <laughs> nice place to visit. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to yeah. Live. Don't get stuck there like Matt Damon. I'll go with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, when he gets there and brings water back. I forgot what the yeah. total recall. But anyway, uh, let's wrap up this point. But I think there's a bit more we can squeeze out of it. You know what you were saying in the beginning about how spirituality, deep experiential spirituality on more of a mass scale might be the secret ingredient that could turn collapse into a brighter future eventually. And uh, we, we talked about that quite a bit. And that's why I feel like spiritual teachers sort of behaving so badly, it kind of sabotages the project. And it, it no, disillusions the heck out of people. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. But I don't want people to say, well, therefore, I'm not going to meditate. I'm not doing that. The practice and the experience that you can gain from the practice is what matters to me, and not so much the perfection of the teacher. Oh, I agree. There was once a well-known spiritual teacher who somebody asked him how many followers he has, and he apparently had hundreds of thousands of them, and he said, I don't have any followers. Everyone follows their own experience, their own benefits. That's the kind of way I see it. I don't care if every spiritual teacher that ever lived turned out to be a scoundrel, my own experience is enough to keep me going. Yeah, right. 
Another section on your webpage was on Judaism and a bunch of quotes and points about Judaism and, and the way you teach it. Do you want to say some things about that? Unless you want to raise something specific, I mean, Judaism is my mother tongue. I think that when Judaism is read through a lens, uh, you know, a mystical lens, a lens of non-duality, I think it's a very, very rich tradition. I think that when it's read through a tribal lens, it's pretty silly. You know, so I have a, a new book coming out hopefully next year called Judaism Without Craziness. <laughs> and the craziness for me is the notion that there's one God separate from the universe who created the universe, who chose the Jews from among all the peoples of the earth. That's what we say every, you know, every time we read the Torah, part of the blessing is Bachar Bano Mikol Ha'amin, that God chose us from among all the peoples to receive God's one and only revelation, you know, the Torah, because we don't think the Gita is revelatory. We don't think the Holy Quran is revelatory. So God chose us to receive the Torah and gave us the deed to the promised land in perpetuity, regardless of who was there before we got there or who was there when we got back. I mean, that to me is crazy. That's pure tribal jingoism. That's pure marketing. I mean, every religion has it, right? To say that Muhammad is the seal of the prophets is a way of saying our prophet's better than your prophet. So join us to say that Jesus is the only son of God is the same thing. It's all about marketing. And every religion is trying to market itself as the true faith because on the surface, they don't agree. It can't be that God has a son and doesn't have a son because Islam and Judaism say, uh, no, God doesn't have kids. <laughs> so it can't have it both ways. Maybe all of those things are a bit crazy and the mystics have it right. Judaism is a tremendously rich tradition that tries to integrate what you were saying before, the transcendent with the imminent. And it, you know, it's not, as in some Christianities, you know, faith alone. It's faith and works. You know, it's that your belief in the divine sends you into the world to be a holy being. So it's, it's something that I absolutely respect when it's not hanging from what I call, the, you know, the craziness. I keep a very Jewish life. You know, I observe the Shabbat in my own way. I observe kosher in my own way. But it's always my way, not the way my parents did it. For some reason, as you were saying that, I was reminded of um, when I think it might have been Voyager 1 went out pretty far in the solar system and took a photo of Earth from that perspective. And you could see Earth is this little tiny dot. And Carl Sagan made some comment about how looking at that little dot and then considering that all of the bloodshed and the wars and the fighting over little tiny bits of territory on that little dot to dominate it for some little short blip of time in the vast scheme of things. Just the absurdity of that. There is a terminal absurdity to human thinking, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, it's a craziness. But when you were talking about Voyager 1, I thought you were talking about the first Star Trek movie. That's where my mind I went. remember that movie. <laughs> Actually, the guy who started that lives in my town. V'ger, kept saying V'ger. Why is it that people become so myopic? Why is it they become so narrow-minded and focused? My way is the best way, you know? <laughs> Because I doubt that the revered founders of any religion were talking that way, although some of their words are interpreted to mean that kind of thing. But I don't think they could have been so small-minded and yet have, have had such an impact. 
Yeah, I mean, first of all, we don't know what any of them said. We don't even know if they they all really existed know, as right. historical figures, and we certainly don't know what they said. But I think the reason why people are so myopic is that people are frightened. I think fear is the motivator. We are so afraid of dying that we want to have some get out of death free card. And that's what religions peddle. Either it's reincarnation or some heaven realm that you can get to if you follow the rules properly or you have the right beliefs. I mean, that's part of the addiction of transcendence if it's these other heavenly realms. Or take it outside of, of normative religion. I mean, you say, oh, you know, this life is like a school or life is a school and you go from grade to grade to grade. I mean, all of that is, in my mind, is simply a way of avoiding the fact that you die. Nobody wants to die. And we're so afraid of what that is that we create systems that offer us, promise us a get-out-of-death-free card. And then you're afraid that the system isn't true. How do I prove my system is true and your system is wrong? Well, the standard way of doing it is to show that your God is false and my God is true. And the only way to do that is for my God to kill your God. And the only way for my God to kill your God is for me to kill you. And so we have ongoing religious wars trying to prove whose God is really God in order to prove who's got the true get-out-of-death-free card. The way around all of that is to realize that, in a sense, well, the ego dies. Sorry. <laughs> it just does. Rami comes to an end. I just took some, I think it's called, it's one of those longevity things you can do on the internet, and it says I'm going to die when I'm 91, which I think is an upgrade from an earlier longevity thing, which had me dying in se at 77, which is only a few years. Do they now. base those on so, like whether you smoke and how, how, how yeah, old your parents right. were and all that kind right. of stuff? Exactly, yeah. exactly. But I'm still going to die. You know, my mom's 92. Maybe I'll make it that far. Maybe I won't. But even if I do, eventually I'm going to die. But I have no fear around that because what you think happens when you die really depends on who you think you are now. I think that I am simply God Rami-ing, and you're God Rick-ing, and your two dogs, that's God dogging. Dogging. <laughs> so the extent to which I'm identified as Rami in my own mind, that's the extent to which I don't want to die or I fear death. But when I realize that's not my truest self, then there is no death in that sense. You know, Rami's gone, but my truest self, which isn't separate from anything else, is, you know, the wave returns to the ocean, but the ocean continues to wave. That takes away the fear. And if there's no fear, it's hard to get people agitated enough within their religious system to want to kill other people. I was listening to a guy the other day, and he was saying things like, well, if you believe in reincarnation, then you'll be reincarnated. You'll be reincarnated. If you don't, you won't. And he went on with half a dozen other things like that. If you believe it, then this. And if you don't believe it, then that. And the whole while I was thinking, that's like saying, if you believe the earth is flat, okay, the earth is flat. But obviously, there's an objective reality that really doesn't care what we believe and that works the way it works and is the way it is, regardless of whether or not we understand it. So why couldn't some of these beliefs about what happens when you die be like that? Maybe there really is reincarnation, and it happens regardless of whether we think it does. Well, that's true. I, I think the reason that I am not inclined to go in that direction, because 
Of course, the opposite could be true. No, it's it's not reincarnation. It's heaven and hell. And if you're not the right kind of religious person, you're going to hell. So, so it's, it doesn't really help. But the reason I, I'm not drawn to that is because the people who speak to me, the great saints and sages of humankind, have all gone beyond this. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, people like Ramana Maharshi. They say, you know, don't leave us when he was dying. Don't leave us. And he said, where can you go? I mean, it's just all this. So... When you look at the great saints, whether it's uh, someone like Mansur al-Hajj in Sufism who said, uh, I am truth, or Jesus, or Abraham Abulafia who said, behold, I am God and God is me, or, you know, I mean, you, you find this stuff in, in every religious tradition, the realization of your true nature being this oceanic reality. Because all of those saints across human history or throughout human history, across human cultures, seem to come to the same realization. I find it convincing. Of course, you could say, but there are billions of people who think, no, that I personally am going to hell. I mean, I've been at seminars where I was singled out. They were Christian seminars where I was singled out as the only non-Christian in the room. And people said, you know, you're going to burn in hell for all eternity. You know, it doesn't bother me because it's just something I do not believe in. It's it's just so far from my what I consider to be a credible belief. But it is tremendously motivating if you're open to it. Because then you go, crap, I don't want to burn for all eternity. How do I not burn? This one seminar was a, a battle of the Protestantisms. And they were saying, well, you don't burn if you become a Southern Baptist. And someone said, no, no, you got to be a Presbyterian. Like, how do you know? What I told them when they said, what do you think? And I said, well, I like Dante's circles of hell. And I'm, I'm hoping to make it to the first circle because that's where all the cool people are, Buddha and Plato and all the Lao Tzu. I want to hang out with them in the first circle of hell. It's okay. Did you ever watch uh, Emo Phillips's skit about he runs into a guy who's about to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge and they start having this conversation? You know what I'm talking about? No, no, no. Uh, it's hilarious. You know, Dan, remind me, and I'll put that in the show notes on this, and you can watch it too. But very funny skit. Can't go into it right now. With regard to Ramana Maharshi and others that we could mention, you know what you were saying earlier about sort of the both-and perspective of things where it's transcendent and it's imminent, or, you know, it's unmanifest and it's manifest, and both dimensions or all the dimensions have their significance. Well, you know, Ramana said that his cow was the reincarnation of some woman who had served him devotedly earlier on and uh, that the cow got enlightened when she died. Or maybe it was the other way around. No, the cow got enlightened. I think it was the woman earlier. They had a shrine for the cow. Yeah, Lakshmi, the cow. So it's not like he didn't believe that reincarnation was a thing, and he actually often referred to it, but just that it wasn't the ultimate thing. It's what they call in Vedanta Vyavaharika Satyam, the transactional reality. Like a room full of pots, it's only clay, but there are pots. And you don't deny the existence of the pots. That's just sort of the relative play of things. No, but if you break a pot, it's not going to reincarnate as another pot. True, but (laughs) but metaphors have their limitations, yeah. I appreciate what you're saying. I think that even someone, to me, it's just an example of how even someone who is so awake uh, as Ramana Maharshi still is a product of his culture. And this is, you know, this is what comes out. I mean, I've studied for the last couple of decades, I guess, with a student of his, not not direct, one generation removed. Michael James or somebody (laughs) like that? 
No, no, somebody that no one's ever heard of. He keeps way below the radar. He's an Indian guy. When he explains this stuff, you know, he, he explains it without the trappings of Indian culture. And so, you know, he looks at reincarnation as, I mean, the way the, way the ocean continues to wave, but it's never the same wave coming back. The thing with reincarnation often is it's just another way of being addicted to ego that this woman came back as a cow. <laughs> well, no, that makes no sense. Or the cow could become a woman. That means there's something essential about the woman that came back as a cow or as a, something essential about the cow that becomes something else. There's nothing essential except the, the non-dual reality itself. I have no problem with saying, you know, the ocean waves without end but no wave itself ever comes back. But then you say, well, wait a minute, what about people who remember past lives? Well, I don't have a problem with that because there's only one living thing. That's the ocean, if you like. That's the divine reality of which you are a part. And if you are sensitive enough, and I'm not, but if one is sensitive enough to tap into more of the oceanic, maybe you do have Akashic records, karmic memories of other things the ocean was doing. The problem is we then identify it with me. Oh, that was me. I mean, I know a number of people who believe they were Cleopatra. I know nobody. I mean, this is, I'm not making it up. I mean, I know a number of people who say I was, I'm a reincarnation of Queen Cleopatra. Nobody that I've ever met was ever a reincarnation of the woman who cleaned up when Cleopatra took a dump in the bucket. Right. No one was ever re- I, I was the woman who took the bucket out and cleaned it. No one was ever that reincarnation. I think the ego is very powerful, very subtle, and can just weave itself into all of these different things. None of them speak to me at the moment. When I'm dying, <laughs> maybe then, maybe then, oh no, I've got to go back. This is not done. I didn't, you know, I didn't do enough. I want to get more stuff. I'm going to play with this a little bit more with you. Not, not, to win an argument or convince you of anything, but just to play with the idea, because there's some other wrinkles of it that you've probably considered, but maybe we can hash them out. Um, one is the whole near-death experience and out-of-body experience phenomenon, where people go out of body, I've spoken to many of them, and experience something that they couldn't possibly have known, and then they come back. And there's this famous story where somebody was undergoing surgery and they left the body and they, well, there, there are many stories where they hear what the surgeons are saying and what music they were playing in the room and all kinds of things. But then they actually, there was one woman who saw a red sneaker up on the roof of the hospital. And sure enough, somebody went up there later and found the sneaker. Um, so if that, those kinds, those kinds of stories suggest that there's a subtler aspect to our makeup, which is not just the physical body. I don't disagree with those. I, I don't challenge those experiences. Uh, just like when you read uh, autobiography of a yogi, I've, I, I just recently reread it. When I read, uh, when I read it the first time, I was like, "What are all these? You know, these cities, these powers that all these people." But I read it the second time, and I read it with a, a more, hopefully, a more mature mind, and. Well, there's a guy, Colin Wilson, who uh, has this metaphor of an 88-key piano keyboard and that most of us only play the keys in the center. Right. Chopsticks. But some of us, yeah, right. But, but, but some of us, through near-death experience, through psychedelics, through meditation, we can play more keys. And I would imagine that there are some people who can play the entire keyboard. And I think that when you die, 
if you have this near-death kind of experience, you're playing more of the keys. I would go even farther than the two examples. Not only can you see things because your perspective is, is larger than just what's behind your eyes, I think that you might even be able to perceive what might be considered the enlightenment experience through near death. I was once corresponding with, oh gosh, his name just went out of my head, but one of the major, not Moody, but someone else, near death researcher. This is back in the 80s and 90s. Bruce Grayson? He was at, he was at Yale. Gary like, Schwartz? No, you can throw out all the names. <laughs> <laughs> he he it, yeah. I wrote him once and I said, here's what people experience during meditation, because he was a scientist. He wasn't interested in meditation. And then it sounds to me exactly what you're describing in near-death experience. And he wrote back and said, no, I think it's the same thing, that you're dropping the limitations of the body-mind and experiencing the full, to, to mix my metaphors here, to experience the full ADA keys of human consciousness. I have no problem with accepting any of that. And to take it back to the autobiography of a yogi, I assume it's possible to do things that look like magic to me because I'm only playing a few keys, but that someone who can play the whole keyboard can do, and I'm just mesmerized. I don't understand how they do it. So I'm not limited, I hope, to saying no to any of this stuff. My limitation comes when I imagine that when someone says to me, so I am other than the universe or the, you know, the divine consciousness. I don't have room in my experience for separation. Yeah. No, neither do I. I take all sorts of beliefs and ideas like this as hypotheses that are interesting to explore. Did Jesus walk on water? Okay. Maybe he did. Maybe can that be tested? Could we find somebody else who can walk on water? And just because we can't doesn't mean he didn't do it, but picking that as one far out example. So I'm really open to all this stuff. But nothing that happens is separate from oneness. And yet, in the same breath, all kinds of things happen. If it's true that when the gross physical body dies, the anamaya kosha, as they call it, there are still the subtler koshas, the subtler sheaths left, all of that, it's an appearance, and it's not separate from oneness, but we still, living life involves engaging with appearances, even if we don't take them as ultimately real. Yeah, yeah, right. I could follow you in that direction. Right. And so that woman who saw the red sneaker on the roof of the hospital, and I could cite many other examples, how was she able to do that? Because her physical eyes were in a body that was being operated on under anesthesia. There must be some subtler mechanics of perception which are independent of the grosser <laughs> physical body. The question is, is consciousness a byproduct of the brain or is the brain simply a way of tuning into consciousness? What do you think about and, that? And I... I think the second. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think the brain is like a receiver. Yeah, like a radio. Yeah, and that spiritual practices are, and, and other things simply help you fine-tune the radio so you can get a, you know, you can reach a, a broader spectrum. Yeah, and if the radio gets damaged, it doesn't mean that the music isn't still playing and that other radios can't right. pick it up. Right. It's just this particular radio. Right. Yeah. But again, analogies have their limitations, and what we're saying here is that in addition to the universal music, so to speak, the electromagnetic field, which radios detect, that's as far as that analogy goes. But what we're saying here is that there could be a, a sort of a jiva or a subtle essence to our makeup that survives when the body dies and that could therefore take on another body. To me, out-of-body experiences are an interesting bit of evidence for that. My only issue here would be 
does that subtle consciousness that takes on a new body, is that Rick? Is that Rami? And I would say no, that it wouldn't be identified. But most people want it to be whatever their afterlife scenario is, they want it to be recognizably them. I mean, when people say to me, you know, I'm going to die, go to heaven, I'm going to see my grandparents. Well, that means that your grandparents are going to be recognizable to you and that you're going to be recognizable to them and that somehow it's the ego that goes. Or when I've had people say to me, well, they're going to hell because they do X, Y, and Z. And then you say, well, is the soul that goes to hell, is that the person that you're, you know, is that the ego? And they said, no, no, it's totally different. So, well, then why punish the soul for what the ego did? Yeah, good point. Right? This stuff gets very convoluted. I'm infinitely fascinated with it. I could talk about it all day long. But the work is playing as many of the 88 keys as possible in order to make the world a more holy, just, compassionate place. If we consider spiritual evolution to be sort of a vast spectrum of possibility, like you say, we're playing two or three keys, we want to be able to play 88 keys. Chances are we're not going to be able to play all 88 keys in the in the span of one lifetime. But maybe we'll double the number of keys we can play. We'll go from four to eight or something. So it would seem that if, if this is true, that there is some essence to us that continues to evolve along a vast spectrum, it'll be good to have multiple opportunities to progress, get to six. For that, yeah, whatever that essence yeah, is, yeah. right? I mean, that, I would get that. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with that. I mean, how, on, on what grounds? But I don't know if it's true that you can't wake up in a single lifetime. I mean, maybe you say you, oh, I think you can. people who do, or you could argue people who do have had multiple lifetimes to get ready. That for too, lifetime. yeah. So, so there's, there's that. But um, Yogananda said in, yeah, the, I, I in just, his I autobiography I mean, that, um, I don't know if this is true or not, but he said that reincarnation was edited out of the Christian doctrine at the Council of Nicaea because it was felt by whoever that it gave people too much. It would make them lazy, like, oh, I'll do whatever I want and I'll keep you know, working on it next time around. They wanted them to focus in on being a good person right now. By good person, they wanted them to focus in on following the rules and letting, and being controlled by the powers of the council. Right. So, yeah, right. I mean, Judaism, too, has a reincarnation tradition. Mm -hmm. It's not mainstream, but it also has that. Yeah. All right. Well, we've pretty much exhausted this. Whatever it is, I find it interesting, the idea of understanding. I apologize for all the noises coming out of my neighborhood. What's that, the ice cream truck? <laughs> That's an ice cream truck coming by, yeah. Wow, I used to drive one it of those. It comes by every day. Never stops. Huh. No one ever buys ice cream. I think he must be dealing drugs. I don't know how he makes a living. <laughs> yeah. It must be getting warm down there to have an ice cream truck. Yeah. We're going to yeah. have some snow in the next day or two. With all kinds of subjects like this, I mean, it's fun to talk about them. and I don't think it's just party conversation or sort of idle gossip, because I think that understanding how the universe works is an important component or should be of spiritual development. It's certainly an, an emphasis in, probably in your, your tradition, certainly in Vedanta, you know, Jnana Yoga, just sort of really sorting things out and getting a clear understanding of things. And I'm sure that there have been many Christians who've focused on understanding. Of course, these traditions have different understandings, but however they go about it, it seems to me that we, you know, we have an intellect, we have a heart, we have a mind, we have these different components, and cultivating each of these faculties to do what it's designed to do as fully as it can be done 
seems to be part of the holistic development that I would consider to be spiritual evolution. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that at minimum, just in the embodied existence that I have, I mean, there's five dimensions that I'm aware of, you know, body, heart, mind, soul, and spirit. Yeah, yeah. And there may be subtle gradations within all of those. And I think that we need to develop practices on each of those dimensions. Yeah. It's not enough to just sit on a cushion. In the retreats that I run, when we used to do retreats pre-COVID, every morning we started with uh, Qigong. And we did meta loving-kindness meditation every day. And we did mindfulness practice and self-inquiry and study. We tried to work on all five dimensions over the course of, of every day of the retreat. Let me switch metaphors to the four yogas, karma, bhakti, jhana, and raja. Yeah. Some people are more inclined to devotional practice. So they're, they're bhakti people. And some are more inclined, like I am, to jhana, the more in the intellect. But I remember Ramdas said once that start where you are, but eventually, if you stick with it over a lifetime, they won't all be equal necessarily. But all four of them, all four categories of practice, you know, will will be manifested. You'll, you'll manifest them in your life. When I first heard that, I was much, much younger. I thought, nah, I'm never going to be a bhakti person or I'm never going to be, you know, a karma yogi person. But he he was right. I mean, I, if I listed them, uh, karma yogi, karma yoga would probably be on the bottom because <laughs> I'm too lazy to do anything for other people. But <laughs> no, you are. Um, you know, I would have, I would have thought bhakti would have been something I could never do. But it's now it's it's though it it, it challenges my normal worldview. My my bhakti practices of devotion to the divine mother are central to my daily practice. And I never would have imagined that. All the great yeah. non-dual masters from, you know, Shankara. Shankara said, um, the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. And uh, Ramana was very devotional, devo devoted to Arunachala. Mm -hmm. And Nisargadatta, you know, after the, the main group would leave, he'd break out the symbols and they'd have bhajans practice. And Papaji was very devoted to Krishna. So all these guys had the devotional component. And no, you know, they would not have said, oh, it's all just one. And so, you know, devotion is, is a delusional concession to, you know, or anything like that. They all considered them important. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when I started to move in that direction, I was adamantly opposed to what I was experiencing because I was, no, it's just the non-duality. You can't have this thing. It's, this makes no sense. I mean, I went to a number of teachers, I won't go into it, but try to get rid of the experience <laughs> that I was having. And I was finally sitting with Andrew Harvey once. We had been teaching together in the Phoenix area. We were at the, the Phoenix airport. And I said to him, I'm having all these experiences of the divine feminine. I'm you know, seeing images and hearing voices and all this. And I said, this violates my non-dual theology. I don't have room for this. And... I won't go into all the things he said, but in his delightfully loving, mocking way, he basically said, if you think there's non-duality and duality, you don't understand non-duality, that if it's all the one reality, then it can manifest as Kali and Mary and, you know, Chachma, Sophia, all these different characters I was experiencing or Krishna or, you know, whoever it happens to be. So 
he helped me get over my intellectual resistance to the experiences I was having. Yeah. Like I was saying earlier, you know, the heart is a faculty. And, and if you're going to be undergoing a holistic development, it's bound to develop and you're going to start having experiences in that yeah. in that way. So, hey, you just gave a little hint there to something that you haven't discussed, which is, would you be willing to talk more about the experiences you've had? You started experiencing these divine mother things, for instance. I mean, how did that manifest? And what were what were your experiences? Yeah, well, I mean, there were a lot. It'll get boring, but I'll give you some examples. So I first started having this kind of visual. I'm more of an auditory person, but I started having these visualizations, not on purpose, but I was sitting in my home and I lived in Miami, Florida. I was reading the Herald, Miami Herald newspaper, and they had this gorgeous I guess, icon of the Virgin Mary. It was just this watercolor. It was, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. And it really took up the, above the fold, as we used to say, when you got a real paper newspaper. And I flipped the paper over to see what gallery this was, or what church this was in, because I wanted to go see it. And it turns out it was an oil slick on the side of a bank building in, I think it's Clearwater, Florida. And thousands of people were making pilgrimage to it. She's called Our Lady of Clearwater. I don't like crowds. I wasn't going to go see it after reading that. But it was clear that this was not an oil slick, that this was an appearance of the Divine Mother as Mary. And then I started seeing her everywhere. Again, I wasn't comfortable with it, but I couldn't make it stop. Then I started having auditory experiences. And in Judaism, when the ancient rabbis would experience, would hear the revelation, would hear the voice of God, they called it a bat kol, B-A-T-K-O-L. It literally means bat is daughter and kol is voice. They heard the daughter's voice, even though they, th they thought it was the revelation of God and God for them was so steeped in masculine imagery. When they heard God, they heard not Charlton Heston <laughs> or George Burns, you know, they heard a woman's voice. And I started having the same thing, though I identified it as Kali or Mary or in the Hebrew Bible tradition, Chachma, Lady Wisdom, that who, who appears in um, the eighth chapter. She's mentioned a lot, but she speaks for herself in chapter eight of Proverbs, starting in verse 22. Anyway, I started having these auditory things and she would say stuff to me. Some of it was personal about you're so stupid. Can't you do this right for once? And that may have been my mother on speakerphone. I could have, I could have mixed it up from my mother to the mother. But one of the most moving ones, and I'll share this. I was uh, leading this interfaith group pilgrimage in Israel-Palestine, and we were in Nazareth. And I'd never been there. I'd lived in Israel for a year at one time, year and a half another time. I'd been visiting many times. Never, ever went to Nazareth for some reason. But Nazareth is called Mary's Town because that's where she's from, Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm sitting by what's called Miriam's Well or Mary's Well. And it's all stone. It's, it's closed off now. But that was the town well. And there's a beautiful but very old and very faded icon of Mary attached to the stone. And I had this practice by then. This is just a few years ago. I had this practice that whenever I was at a Catholic place where there were Mary statues, I would always do the devotional, you know, Hail Mary, full of grace practice. So that's where I was in Nazareth. And I was just doing it like I always do. Hail Mary, full of grace. The, uh, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among all women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Pray for us sinners now and into the, or unto the moments of our death. 
So I was doing that because that's something I just do. And then I heard this voice, this bot call in my head, but at least in my way I understand it, not, it wasn't my voice. And she said, stop doing that. She said, that's not your mantra. She didn't say mantra, but that's not your mantra. She said, recite this. And what I received was, uh, so it's, it's Chachma is the Hebrew for lady wisdom. So it's Hail Chachma, full of grace. The divine is you. Blessed are you and all women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, all being. Holy Mother, fount of wisdom, guide us seekers now and into the moments of our death. And that's become a daily practice for me since then. So it's been years, but not that many years. So those kinds of things happened to me, and it took me a long time to make peace with it. But with the help of Andrew Harvey, Sister Jose Habde, I don't know if you know who she is. Uh, she's deceased now, but Franciscan nun and a Native American medicine woman. I mean, I had a lot of teachers around this who helped me become comfortable with my experience. And now this devotional using mala beads and reciting the, the Hail Chachma thing is a major part of my spiritual practice. So, you know, I'm hoping it's not ego projection. I'm, I'm always willing to say, you're kidding yourself, but that's not how I experience it. So I'm not making any claims other than I'm taking my experience seriously. Yeah, that's great. I think that seems like a healthy approach to it. So do you think that um, when you had that experience, and it sounds like you've had a lot of different experiences, you said, I hope it's not an ego projection. Do you think that there's actually some kind of celestial being that is communing with you, that is imparting some wisdom to you? Or, Well, you know, I don't. I don't. I think she is simply my access point. You know, she's the archetype that, for whatever reason, speaks to me if I want to experience the divine as, I don't want to say other, but other. I mean, you said it really well before that, but I can't quote you about these different, I mean, Ishwara kind of things, these personal deities that people have. So, so I see her as my archetype or my icon for listening more deeply or experiencing more deeply the greater reality of which we're all a part. But I don't think there's separate beings out there floating around. Would you regard humans as separate beings floating around? If you make a concession to duality or to that Vyavaharika Satyam, transactional truth, Aren't there billions of separate beings in the world, even though ultimately there yeah, are? From that transactional perspective, yeah. But even even then, I know at a, I think I know, at a higher level that you and I, it's just God talking to God in that sense. Yeah, both are true. Here's one way of breaking it down. We could say on, on one level, nothing ever happened. And on another level, we could say stuff is happening, but it's all divine and perfect just as it is. On another level, we could say, Stuff is happening and there are problems to deal with. There's starving people over here and the disease over there and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think we need to sort of lock into one level to the exclusion of the others. I think we can expand our scope to incorporate all three simultaneously. So you can say paradoxical things in the same breath and be comfortable with both sides of the paradox. Yeah, I'm comfortable with that. Paradoxically, I would say that, yeah, of course, there are celestial beings and angels and all that kind of stuff. They have their realm of experience or existence. We have ours. And there actually is some overlap so that we can commune with them or they with us. And that doesn't violate the ultimate essential oneness of things. 
Yeah, that's the key, that, that people realize it doesn't violate the essential non-duality. Yeah. And the duality bit is necessary for living life. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to put a spoon in your mouth. <laughs> yeah, right. Right, absolutely. Yeah. There's a saying in Vedanta, faint remains of ignorance. Um, it, it, they concede that it's ignorance, but they say you have to have it in order to actually live or function. Right, right. And it's only ignorance from the absolute perspective, right. the relative perspective. It, it makes total yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. I just feel like that thing you just said about you know, having some of these connections with Mother Mary or whoever that was is fascinating. Have there been other things like that along the way? Because you do seem to have a sort of well, mystical dimension. I'll tell you something that, that happened a couple of years ago. I was sitting with my teacher, this Indian fellow from the Ramana Maharshi tradition, and he's in his late 80s. And we were just sitting and chatting. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't teach. He doesn't do workshops. He doesn't do anything. He, he just lives in a little townhouse. And if you know about him, you can call him up and, you know, if he's up to it, you can just come and hang with him. So I was in town and I asked to come and see him. So we're just sitting in his living room and we're just chatting. And then, and I've known him a long time. And he says to me, what's your spiritual practice? And I said, what do you mean? You know what my spiritual practice is. I do self-inquiry and I ask the question, who am I? And he says, are you? Are you what? That's all he said was, are you? And then I wasn't, but I wasn't not. Uh (laughs) It was the weirdest thing. Rami was gone, but aware. And I've had experiences where you drop body, mind, and there's nothing. And then you come back. But this was not that. This was everything was still there, but it wasn't. You know, there was awareness, but there was no aware-er or something. I don't know how to put it, but there was no language. I couldn't speak. I wasn't me. I was just aware of what was happening. And it went on for a while. Now, what a while means, I don't know, because I had no sense of time. And then when it ended, I said, what happened? And he said, I'm tired. (laughs) You need to go now. (laughs) So I don't know what he, you know, we never came back to it. I never talked to him again about it. But that was an experience very different than what I have with the Divine Mother. Because with the Divine Mother, Rami is there having an experience or listening or seeing or somehow interacting with this other dimension or this avatar from another dimension. Whereas in this, it was completely different. And there was just an incredible stillness. I can't say I was aware of everything because there was no I there. There was just, there's no language for it. I have no idea. But to me, that seems like an, an afterthought. That seems like the flip side of what I was experiencing when I'm having these dialogues with the Divine Mother. Ultimately, though, it's just back to sitting cross-legged every morning. You know, oh, that was cool. I got to go back to the cushions. Yeah, you can't get hung up on any of these things. And I think it's completely um, legitimate and probably normal to shift into different modes of functioning. I bet you even the great sages of antiquity did that, there would be a time when it sort of depends on the the circumstances and what you're engaged in. Sometimes there needs to be a more manifest engagement or maybe a more devotional engagement or sometimes no engagement, you're totally withdrawn. But I think over time, these things tend to integrate more and more. So, you know, you can be driving down the street or 
jogging or something, and yet that silent, nothing is happening, nobody's there dimension is lively in the midst of, I'm breathing heavily because I'm jogging. That all kind of integrates after a while. Yeah, jogging, I don't have a problem with that happening while you're jogging. While you're driving, you should pull over. <laughs> and it happens to people even without a specific practice. It does. Because I think, you know, I think we all have the entire 88 key keyboard. It's just, and sometimes maybe you just fall in through grace to playing, you know, parts that you never even knew existed. Yeah, I have a friend who's been going through a stage recently where when she drives, she has to avoid looking at the sky because if she looks at anything vast, she slips into so much vastness that she's not even aware that she's driving anymore. And she has to like, whoa, wait, wait, pull over. <laughs> so... <laughs> So it's a matter of integrating, because eventually that won't happen. You also say in your notes that um, you're a recovering food addict. You, you seem to be doing pretty well with your recovery, because you don't look overweight to me. But you're, you're a compulsive <laughs> overeater, and you've been clean for 13 years. Well, when you have a food addiction, sometimes it can be bulimic. You don't have to be obese. And even when your eating is okay and your, your weight is okay, it's the, the mentality around food. The triggers are still there. One of the things I learned during the last year of lockdown was the attraction I had to certain restaurants that I would go to. And you couldn't go. And I realized, wait, I was doing this addictively. I didn't, didn't even know I had an addiction. And I would say, oh, Restaurants are fine because they limit your portions and all, you know, so it's okay. But I lost 20 pounds in the last year <laughs> wow. because I couldn't go to these places that I was going. And I wasn't overeating at those places, but I was just eating poorly at those places, if that, if that makes sense. So I never say I'm, you know, I'm a recovering food addict. I'm working at it day by day, but I, I would never say I'm really clean because the triggers are there. I mean, I know there is a bag of Fritos on the other side of this door <laughs> that my wife is enjoying yeah. that is calling me with the same intensity as the Divine Mother. It's another kind of bot coal. <laughs> it's interesting, uh, you know, being a food addict is different than being an alcoholic because you can get rid of all the alcohol in your house and not go to bars or just go anywhere near alcohol, but you have to have food. You know, you can't get rid of all the food. Right, yeah. right. Sometimes in 12-step world, there's Oh, you're a food addict. That's not as bad. I'm a drug addict. That's the real addiction. Or I'm out. They play who's the bigger addict, which is just sort of egoic silliness. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are recovering alcoholics. I wouldn't change <laughs> my addiction for theirs, even though you say, well, you just don't go. You don't buy it. You don't go there. It's all madness to me. So I don't say I don't have a hierarchy of addictions. Do you think people get addicted to things like food or anything else because there's not enough internal fulfillment and so outer cravings kind of get the upper hand? Well, I think that could be part of it. I think with food, because that's the only one I really know. I've, I've never, literally, have never had a drink. Even in when you're supposed to have wine with various holidays, I always used grape juice. So I've never had a, a, a drink and I've never had experience. I've had, I've smoked marijuana twice in high school it just made me hungry. And I said, oh, no, <laughs> it does that. Yeah. So that was my only drug experience. 
so just from my my food experience, I know that there are psychological. There's a psychological dimension to it. That's absolutely true. I would say it's you know when I'm happy, I want to eat. When I'm sad, I want to eat. So there's always that element to it. But there's also I'm just speaking from food now. There's also the industrial food, the business of food, where food is deliberately made with too much salt, sugar, and fat in order to hook you. People are just evolutionarily designed to consume salt, sugar, and fat. And knowing that, it's like when they would put nicotine in cigarettes because they know it's it's going to hook you. And they knew it was addictive. The same thing with the food industry. So my thing, I think, is more on the salt part. But it doesn't matter. I, mean, I, I love all salt, sugar, and fat things. So it's part me, part psychological, part physiological, and part cultural or economic because it's, the industry is designed to hook me on i mean they even tell you when with frito leg potato chips you can't eat just that's one. true yeah well that's their business model and that's my addiction problem so i don't eat any remember that alka-seltzer commercial remember i i can't believe i ate the whole thing yeah right <laughs> all right enough about that topic what's this holy rascals business about yeah, holy rascals. Those are people who have too much respect for religion to leave it in the hands of marketing professionals. You know, those are people who see the craziness in religion but don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So, you know, I would say people like Ramana, people like Nisargadatta Maharaj, Ramakrishna. I mean, Jesus would be a holy rascal. Jesus was reforming Judaism, not creating Christianity. But you get someone even, let's say someone like either Rabbi Saul of Tarsus or St. Paul, however you want to look at him, you know, he had some incredibly radical things to say that the church is buried because it's not conducive to maintaining the hierarchy. When he says there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female in Christ Jesus, there goes the three major sociological divisions of his time. And he said, no, when you're part, and people say that means the church. First of all, the church maintains those divisions up to this day. But I don't think he's talking about the church. I think he's talking about Christ consciousness. And when you enter into that kind of I am consciousness or whatever you want to call it, all those divisions fall away. I mean, that's holy rascality, teaching that stuff within the context of a tradition. So, what I think we need is more holy rascals, people who will, even from within their tradition, I'm not saying you have to leave your tradition, but from within the tradition to find the great mystics and teach that material. When I go to, again, things changed in the last year of COVID, but when I used to be invited to lots of different churches, I would talk about, let's say, the Gospel of Thomas which now people at least have some sense that there is such a thing. But in, there was a time when people had no idea what that was. Is that uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls? That they got No, the Gnostic. Gnostic the, Gospels. Uh, it's technically not Gnostic, I guess, but it's one of the Nag Hammadi texts. Nag Hammadi, right. In the desert. Yeah. Jesus opens it up. The first, it's 114 sayings of Jesus. And the first one is anyone who figures out what the hell I'm saying won't taste death. And um, in other words, here come 100, now 13, 113 koan that Jesus is teaching that are integrated into the New Testament. The Gospel of Thomas has no narrative. There's no story. It's because Jesus says X, Jesus says Y. But they're koan-like koan statements, and you've got to figure them out. 
when he's, you know, when you can make the two one and the male like the female and the female like the male and, you know, all those kinds of things, you know, when you can achieve that yin yang integration, then you experience the kingdom of heaven. Well, you can't build a church on that. You can build a, a jhana koan practice on something like that. So there are these wild characters throughout human history and now in different traditions and outside traditions, but these incredibly brilliant, wise, open-hearted people who are bringing out a different way of understanding these conventional teachings that all of us have grown up with. That's, that's who I call a holy rascal. Mm. Yeah, it seems to me that most you know, great mystics like Jesus and others in their time, very few people understood them. But they certainly made an impact. They really got the ball rolling. And then once the ball was rolling, certain administrative mindset type people moved in to organize it. You know that old joke about God and the devil walking along the road and God picks something up and puts it in his pocket and the devil says, what was that? And God said, oh, that's just the truth. And the devil says, oh, give it to me. I'll organize it for you. Yeah. There do seem to be these different personality types. Marshi Mahashogi used to call them the second-rate minds, the administrators, even though he needed them. Yeah, there's a place for them, but it shouldn't be at the top of the spiritual food chain. Yeah. And then some of them are like people like, I love Alan Watts. You know, when I was an undergraduate, my Buddhism professor, who was really my, my mentor, he took me aside once and he said, what do you want to do with all of this? What's your goal, your career goal? And I said to him, I want to be the Jewish Alan Watts. <laughs> and he said, Alan Watts? No, that's crap. And I said, that's what I want to be, the Jewish Alan Watts. So Alan Watts was a, a holy rascal, I think, but very brilliant and a serious practitioner. Was he a practitioner? I heard that he just talked the talk really well, but didn't do a no, lot I of think, deep I practice. No, I think he practiced. I mean, well, I mean, I don't know enough about him to say he had a specific tradition. I don't, I don't remember him writing about that. But, but I think he did. He did practice. I think um, he was very engaged in uh, Chinese calligraphy as a practice, and I mean, he worked with some powerful Gary Snyder, other powerful practitioners. So I think, I think he had a practice, but it may not have been a um, brand name practice. Yeah. One more point I want to make about the whole thing with the administrators and all is that, you know, they take over, but then they feel threatened by the mystics because the mystics are always going to be rocking the boat and, and you know, getting to the inner meaning of things. And so, you know, they end up killing them or banishing them or something like that. And so that you, you know, very quickly end up with the kind of outer shell of religion, but no, no remnants really of what the founder of it was teaching or saying. There's a tradition in Judaism called the Lamed Vavnik, means 36, that says, this comes from a guy named Rabbi Abaye, 1600 years ago. He taught that there are always 36 people alive on the planet who are awake to the divine feminine. He used the word Shekhinah, the divine feminine, and then doing this work of being a blessing. And in his time, he meant 36, there were not 35, not 37. It's changed over the centuries. But there are always these 36 people. And he called them Sadiqim Nistarim, hidden saints. And he said they have to be hidden because if they're outed, they get into big trouble. Yeah. And Martin Buber had this theory that Jesus was one of the 36 and that he was outed because he always says to people when he does a miracle, don't 
tell anyone. Right, right. You know, and his mother says, fix the wine problem. And he says, Ma, it's not my time. <laughs> Douglas, keep this below the radar because what happens is what happened. Like you said, you know, they kill people like that. Mansour al Hajj. The guy who said Al Haq I am truth, the Sufi, they killed him. Yeah, I think they dismembered uh, him or something. Yeah, yeah, so the work has to be done below the surface. We started out our conversation talking about how the times are such that there's going to be a big collapse and you suggested it might happen rather quickly and we talked about how perhaps an upsurge in spirituality which does seem to be happening in the world will be the saving grace and it will enable things to kind of turn around eventually and we'll end up in a better world. See what you think about this. Maybe we're going to evolve into a time where dead religions that have lost their inner juice don't dominate the planet and that mystics become more normal and more predominant, more in the majority, and that we could have a real experience-based spirituality become predominant in the world. You think there's any yeah. chance of that? Yeah. I have no idea, but I certainly would love to see that happen. I mean, I, you know, you see that religions are the brand name religions. They're leaking members. Yeah. I've forgotten now the statistics, but, but it's been very rapid in many Christian churches, certainly in synagogues, because the outer form has no juice, like you said, and people are looking for something more than that. But they don't go quietly into the night, right? They go kicking and screaming and fighting. The same thing maybe with political parties, the same thing with, you know, lots of things that people do. We're going to turn to the darkest, most violent way of, of having this collapse happen. But yeah, I think that the mystics are the threat to the establishment and the hope of the rest of us. Yeah. There's one thing that if I don't ask you about it, it's going to bug me later because I thought, well, that's very interesting. And But then we moved on to other things. And that was the thing you were saying about how the greater the saint, the greater the shadow. And um, explain that a little bit more. I mean, Jesus was a great saint, for instance. So what was his great shadow or Ramana or any of these others? I can talk about Jesus a little bit. I mean, you know, Jesus curses the the tree for not bearing fruit off season. Oh, yeah. You know? Uh, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman who's asking for help, he calls her, he's not going to, he basically calls her a dog. And then she says, but even dogs get to the scraps off the, the person's table. He had some of the built-in cultural biases of the Jews of his time. You know, you could say that was his shadow. But style. perhaps no worse uh, than the, the typical Jew of his time. So it's not like Mother Teresa also has her Hitler side or something like that. It, it seems that people become predominantly good as they rise well, to well, say. I think I don't want to have a whole philosophical discussion on it because I don't have it thought out that way. But what I was getting at is that consciousness is not it has its its yin side and its yang side. And, and there's a balance and a flow. And that the greater what I, you know, what I said with the greater the saint, the greater the capacity for sinning, it's because their consciousness is so great. And so the pull of the negative, I think, is also very strong on these people. But most of them, or I don't know about most, let me not say that, but people that I like, like Ramana, they've managed to channel that energy into something positive. But they still have a body, they still have a psyche, they still have these desires that they can work with, maybe sublimate, though I'm not sure that's the way to go, but to at least channel them in the right direction of being a blessing. 
but it's not like they don't have a dark side. It's not, I, I don't think that's possible. I think that everyone has a shadow and that a lot of the spiritual work has to be to embrace your shadow. I'll give you a, an abstract idea here. In the book of Leviticus, in chapter 19, verse 18, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. In the Hebrew, it's ve'ahavta l're'echa kamocha. Ve'ahavta, you shall love. Le're'echa, your neighbor, kamocha as yourself. The Hebrew Bible is in the scroll version, not the printed ones you pick up in a store. But the original scroll texts, they have no vowels. And so you read, you breathe vowels into the consonants. And in the Jewish tradition, you can breathe, you have the standard vowels, and then you can breathe other things if it brings out additional meanings. So there's a rabbi in the 19th century, 1800s, Reb Nachman of Braslov, who said, you can read, Ve'ahavta l'reyecha kamocha, love your neighbor as yourself, but you could also read it, Ve'ahavta l'ra'echa kamocha, which means love your evil as yourself. And he said, unless you can embrace your own shadow side, he didn't use shadow, he said evil, Jung comes much later. But unless you can embrace your own dark side, you're just going to project that onto other people. So my thought is that the more light you experience, the more aware you are of the darkness that you have as well, and that you can bring that darker energy into the light, in service to the light, but you don't really wipe out the dark energy. When you think you're free from the dark, is when you're probably the most dangerous. Mm, yeah, you would be if you thought you were free and clear. But perhaps we purify our darkness. I mean, it's not like Ramana was tempted to do horrible things all day long and had to fight with it. He he just sat there and radiated and marinated in bliss. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that it's a fight. It could just be, you know, you just you just naturally are channeling that energy. And maybe there are exceptions. I, I have no idea. I think it's just dangerous to imagine, well, like we were saying before about uh, the Buddhist teacher, that he had no dark side, therefore he wasn't trying to kill me with a butcher. Yeah. When he was dying of his alcoholic excesses and, and was all sorts of delirious, people were claiming that he was having visions. They were some kind of spiritual thing. But, you know, he was really just his brain was fried. Right. Well, you're trying to salvage your story. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's an interesting point. We'll wrap it up in a minute. It's, it's maybe worthy of you know another conversation sometime or certainly something we can all think about. Spiritual development is said to be a process of increasing the light, but perhaps that illuminates you know dusty corners and you know hidden things that had been hidden from us. And you know there's that saying of everybody has their blind spots. I kind of have always assumed that the, the spiritual process is a matter of not only illumining them and having to stare at them like this ugly mess in the corner of the room all the time, but being able to clean up the mess because we now see it, and then thereafter being free of the mess because it's been cleaned up. And maybe there will always be new messes to clean up. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, so what you're calling cleaning up, I'm talking about channeling that energy yeah. in, in the other direction. Yeah, yeah purifying yeah. it. Good. Well, is there any, um, are there any mysteries of, um, of life that we haven't resolved today? <laughs> no, got, it, got them all nailed. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion? No, I think we we covered it. And anything I would say probably just open another conversation. Yeah, get me going us. again. Right. 
Great. Well, I've really enjoyed this. I don't think I'm going to stick to this policy of not knowing anything about the person because I really do like, you know, I enjoy spending my time walking in the woods and getting to know the person while listening to their talks. But it worked with you. Well, I'm glad it worked. Thank you for having me on, Rick. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, it really was. Thanks to those who have been listening or watching. My guest next week is Cherie Ami, who had a near-death experience. And the week after that is Father Richard Rohr. So that'll be great. Cynthia Bourgeau said, how did you get him? Are you Oprah or something? I said, no, I was just really persistent. <laughs> <laughs> Have you had Cynthia on the yeah, show? Yeah, a couple of times, including recently. I love Cynthia. Yeah, she's great. So thanks to those who have been listening or watching. Visit the website where I'll have links to various things, such as some of Rami's books and to his website and his other, he has a couple of links here. While you're there, you know, if you want to sign up for the podcast or anything else, just explore the menus and you'll see what's there. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Rami. Thank you, Rick. Have a good whatever. <laughs> Stay away from the Fritos. Yeah, good advice. <laughs> Thank you. Now I'm going to go eat. <laughs> no, no, don't do it. <laughs>